We're reading from Psalm chapter 139, from verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You you perceive my thoughts from afar. You perceive my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hand me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness as, is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you meet me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My fame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! <coughs> Were I to count them, they were outnumbered. They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense away in offensive way in me, and lead me in the way at the lasting. Well, a very good afternoon, everyone. I hope you had a um, good afternoon, whatever you end up doing. Uh, if you're anything like me, you're probably a little bit tired, a little bit dopey, we say in Australia. So I'm going to pray for us uh, that God would help us as we uh, look at this incredible passage. Uh, Lord God, thank you that uh, today we can enjoy the, the beauty of your creation, uh, both with what we can see outside and enjoy, uh, but also in conversations with one another. Um, your people, uh, people who you've created, uh, that you know and you've redeemed. Um, Lord, 
when your word says difficult things to us, uh, help us not to turn away in um, hardness of heart or unbelief or uh, apathy or ignorance. But Lord, guide us by your spirit so we'd understand your word. And guide us this afternoon, Lord. We're probably all a little bit tired, maybe a little bit distractible. Um, give us attentiveness, give us wisdom, and help us to apply uh, the things that we learn to our lives uh, so that we can know you more deeply and follow you more faithfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's something very uh, wonderful and intimate about handmade products. Uh, around about this time last year, I, uh, I took a group of people from St Andrews. We did a tour of Greece and Turkey. And this picture was taken in a carpet manufacturing shop uh, just outside of Ephesus in Turkey. Um, it, this workshop was training and employing local ladies in making carpet by hand. Uh, in an age where most carpets, you know, you go to Ikea, most carpets are made by machine, uh, we're told that hand-making carpets is actually a dying art. Uh, and these carpets um, at this shop were, were woven from wool or silk, uh, made on looms, weaving threads together, uh, tying the threads in double knots uh, to create particular patterns. And I was told that actually really good carpets can have up to 860 knots per square inch. Incredible detail. Uh, requires great skill, experience, patience, many, many hours. Uh, some carpets take a, a, a year of full-time work to complete. Um, now maybe you know something about artisanal products. I think I pronounced that right. Artisanal? Artisanal? Something like that. Artisanal products. Uh, I used to think artisanal products uh, were just something that was, you know, misshapen and expensive. Um, but later I figured out that that word actually means traditional. Uh, not mass produced, not mechanically made, but individually handcrafted. And perhaps some of you are into uh, making your own uh, products, uh, pottery or some ceramics, glassware or jewellery. Uh, I like the idea of being able to make things, uh, particularly I like the idea of making hardwood furniture, but I've got no competency in these things whatsoever. Uh, my wife Megan, uh, she's very talented, very creative, she, she, she draws, she paints, uh, she crochets. Um, if we both have an evening at home together, uh, we like to multitask by, by watching a movie and doing something else at the same time. So she'll sit there and she'll crochet and I'll sit next to her and eat a bag of crisps. That's how I multitask. Um, there is something beautifully intimate about making something by hand. Uh, you've created it from the very beginning. You know it intimately, how it was made. You even see flaws in it that no one else has been able to see. Uh, you spend a lot of time with it. There's great care. Um, you know it exactly. You know it to you. It's, it's unique. You love it. Now the Bible says that our bodies are like that. We just heard that famous reading from Psalm 139. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, we're all unique. You could say handcrafted, individually and intimately known by God. Uh, God is not the distant and detached maker. Uh, no, he's very much involved, interested, familiar with everything about us. Uh, it's often said that if we want to understand ourselves properly, we have to seek to understand God. Uh, so as we look at this psalm, uh, we're going to have two points. First, the limitless God. Secondly, people fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, one commentator said that any small thoughts that we have 
about God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Uh, King David, who's the author of this psalm, uh, describes a God who is limitless, without constraints. Um, omni is that Latin word for, for, for all. Um, and in the first three stanzas, God is described as omniscience, omnipresent, omnipotence. Uh, he's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Uh, in verses 1 to 6, uh, he is the God who is all-knowing. He is omnipotent, uh, omniscient, I should say. Uh, people with PhDs um, have a lot of knowledge, but it's usually a lot of knowledge in a very, very narrow and specific area. Um, they're not experts at everything. Um, no one is an expert at everything. Uh, if I, for instance, have a problem with my heart, I'm not going to go to a tailor, I'm going to go to a cardiologist. Uh, but on the other hand, if I have a problem with my jacket, I'm not going to go to my cardiologist, I'm going to go to my tailor. Uh, human knowledge is limited in its subject matter. Uh, human knowledge is limited in its time span. We might know a little bit about the past, something about the present, and hardly anything about the future. But look at what David says about God in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David says to God, you know me, you know me, you know me, you, you discern me. Uh, it's not just superficial and limited knowledge. Uh, it's knowledge about what David does. So you know when I sit and when I rise. It's knowledge about what David thinks. You, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Uh, this knowledge about David is limitless. You are familiar with all my ways. Um, verse 4, even before I speak, you know what I'm going to say. Um, maybe when you're a teenager, you sometimes thought in your teenage angst, uh, no one really knows me. No one understands me. My parents don't understand me. Um, my friends don't understand me. My teachers don't understand me. My siblings don't. No one understands me. Um, in the story, Alice in Wonderland, I'm not sure if you've read the story or watched the book, uh, or watched the movie, I should say. Uh, Alice is asked a question that she finds hard to answer. You may remember this scene. Let me read it for you. Uh, the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar took the hooker, that's a pipe, um, out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. Uh, this was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was, at least I thought I knew who I was this morning, but I think that must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? Uh, said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm, I'm not myself at present. Now, how would you answer that question? Who are you? Um, you might say, well, I, I don't even know where to start. I can talk about my family, uh, my job, my experiences, but a lot of those things are changeable over time. Um, I might talk about my personality, my hopes, my fears, but I'm not always sure of those things myself. Um, I don't really know how to properly describe who I am. But David says to God, well, you know all about me. Nothing is hidden from you. 
He says in verse 6, God, such knowledge is too lofty for me to attain, too hard for me to attain. Uh, in other words, God, you know me better than I know myself. Now, you might think that sometimes there is no one who really knows you. Um, and yet there is a God who knows you, who knows every single thing about you. Um, he knows your, your past and your future. He knows your joys and your sorrows. He knows your successes and he knows your failures. Uh, you have no secrets from God. Nothing is kept hidden from him. So he's the all-knowing God, but then secondly, he's the all-present God. In other words, he is omnipresent. David says from verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I uh, flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. You know, David's conducting a little bit of a, a thought experiment here. Um, he thinks about all those places up in the heavens, you know, up in the sky, or in the depths, in the sea, uh, where he thinks about all those places that if he could flee there, God would still actually be there. Uh, we remember the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah tried to flee from God's presence. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction and went to Tarshish. But God turns up in a storm. David has better sense. Um, he's saying, God, even if I tried, there's no way I could escape your presence. There's no place where I could go where, where you would not be there already. But still, it's almost as if, as David is contemplating this, the omnipresence of God, he starts to get unsettled a little bit. He gets a little bit freaked out. Uh, he, he, he imagines about what it would be like to maybe try to get away from God. Because being in the presence of someone who knows everything about you can be uncomfortable. Um, many years ago at university, I studied a book uh, by Jean-Paul Sartre, the uh, French philosopher, called Being and Nothingness. Um, I don't remember too much about the book. It was pretty bleak, Sartre, you know, existentialist philosopher. But except for this illustration, he said, imagine yourself in a room and you see a keyhole and you see a light through that keyhole. Um, and when you get down and, and look through that keyhole, you can see people in the room on the other side and they don't know that you're watching. Um, now, there's, there's actually something really empowering about being able to see other people, uh, being able to see them and they don't know that you're watching. Uh, you can see them, but they can't see you. It's like one of those one-way mirrors. Um, but then in Sartre's illustration, he says, you know, imagine as you're looking there through that keyhole and you're feeling powerful, all of a sudden you become aware of a noise and you look behind you. And there you see another door with another keyhole. And you see a little eye looking through that keyhole. And you realize that as you're being watched, feeling very powerful, someone is actually watching you, watching others, uh, and you feel terribly vulnerable, um, out of control, you know, insecure. And this is what Sartre says. He says, we want to be in control about how people see us. Uh, we want to control what they have access to, what they know about us, what information they have about us. Because once you feel out of control, you actually feel very insecure. Why? Well, we don't really want to be caught out. You know, we don't, we don't want to be caught out. Uh, we don't want to be found out doing something or saying something that people would be ashamed of or we'd be ashamed of. 
We don't want to be watched. We don't want to have everything about us seen and known. Because, you know, there's always something that we want to hide from people. Um, something that we feel guilty about. But David here in this psalm, once he gets through that feeling of vulnerability, this awareness that God can see everything about him, this sense of vulnerability and feeling threatened by God's knowledge of him, he actually is comforted by God's presence, that God knows him and yet still wants to be with him, that God knows everything about him and yet still loves him, that he wants to be involved in his life. Because we might go through experiences where, humanly speaking, we feel utterly alone, utterly forsaken by people, like everyone's abandoned us, but David knows God is still with him. So, uh, God is all-knowing, he's all-present, but then thirdly, he's, he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, verses 13 to 18. Uh, remember, David is writing way back in the 10th century BC. This is before, you know, ultrasounds and obstetrics and x-rays and all that type of stuff. You know, he knows who his parents are. <laughs> he's got that sorted out. He knows his parents were involved in making him somehow. But from verse 13, he describes God's creative power, uh, the God who is involved deeply in David's formation. Uh, he says, you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And that word there for knit is the same word in Hebrew that's used to weave together threads in a carpet. Uh, the all-powerful God goes into the secret place and he weaves you and he knits you together. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. David is saying, you made me, you know everything about me. Um, you, you saw everything from the very start. And then from verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, even before the day of my birth, every day that I would live until the day I die. You know it all. God, you know it all. You've planned it all. Um, you're in control of all of them. You know, David is not saying that we are without imperfections and flaws. Uh, but when he thinks about God's creative power, it's like he gets overwhelmed. I'm not sure if you've thought about this before. He cries out that famous line, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Look, God has produced billions of people. But we are not mass-produced. Um, we've each been handcrafted with infinite care by the ultimate artisan. David says that we have been knitted together out of our mother's wombs. We are known intimately. God knows us, all our beauty, all our flaws. He knows all your days because he is the limitless God. All-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. So, to be... Fearfully and wonderfully made means that we are precious to God's. Now, I want to delicately, I hope, try to trace out two implications of this. First, for the unborn. I'm going to speak for a few moments on abortion. Uh, last year when I did this uh, sermon, that was the first ever time I've preached on abortion before. I go into this very tentatively. Uh, let me say from the outset... Uh, abortion is a very emotional, it's a sensitive issue. It's important to recognize the depth of feeling people have about this issue. Uh, both sides of the debate on abortion believe that they are doing something good. 
Uh, both sides, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, believe that their views and actions are necessary and righteous. Because there is this conflict. You know, ethicists often call it a conflict of competing sorrows. Uh, whatever decision is made, there is going to be some kind of harm. There are two sorrows. On the one hand, there are the needs and the feelings of the woman who feels as though she's lost autonomy and control over her own body. Uh, and we need to have empathy for that. And there are a range of reasons why abortions are made. Uh, that, that they could be lifestyle factors. You know, simply the choice uh, of not wanting a child. Or, or a woman is completely unprepared to care for this baby. Uh, there could be difficult economic circumstances or a real lack of support from people or a community around her. Um, there could be relational pressures by the family of the child or, or, or family members. Sometimes there could be the trauma of sexual assault or serious health concerns for the mother. Her safety is at risk. That's on the one hand, but then on the other hand, there are the needs of a new and unique human life that you're going to intentionally destroy. Either way, as I said, it's a world of competing sorrows. Uh, the Guttmeyer Institute, which is a, a pro-choice group, estimate that globally there are about 120 million unwanted pregnancies each year. And 61% of those end in abortion. Okay, my rough math says that that's 73 million uh, births, uh, 73 million abortions globally each year. You know, that's bigger than the population of the UK. Now, either that's 73 million babies who have died each year through intervention, or 73 million mothers who are exercising their rights to their own bodies. So, how do we, how do we tackle this sensitive issue? Uh, there's a lot to be said, and I want to encourage you um, that if this, this is a live issue for you, if you're conflicted, do some extra work. I can recommend lots of resources. Um, but I think the answer very much depends on, on where you think human life begins. David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you in the secret place. When I was woven together, your eyes saw my unformed body. Uh, the traditional Christian view, and, and Psalm 139, seems to say life begins at conception. Uh, the unformed body, the body before we are born, is very much precious, a precious life to God. And David says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All your days were ordained by God. Uh, God creates and sustains your body uh, he keeps us going together every single second of our lives. In every single day, that's ordained, which means God has a plan. It's purposeful. There's a reason. From conception to death, God is in charge. His power overshadows you every second of your life. That is the reason why, over the centuries, anyone who wants to take the doctrine of God seriously whether it's the ancient Jews or the early Christians, will always say abortion is wrong. Why? Well, because you're putting yourself in the place of God. Uh, God is in charge of every part of life. Life at the very, very, very beginning in the womb is fragile. Uh, yes, people will say, and we need to hear the weight of this argument, 
don't I have a right over my own body? Um, this will be inconvenient. This child will cost me. This might cause me a lot of harm. I should be able to do something about it. Um, but doing something about it, so to speak, is also a violation of God's sovereignty. Uh, it's the taking a life that's been started by God. Now, as I said, there's a lot that could be said on this issue. Uh, but one thing that's always bothered me about justifying abortion, apart from intervening to save the life of the mother, so in the case of ectopic pregnancies, but any, what's always bothered me about justifying abortion is that any argument that's used for ending the life of an unborn baby could also be used in the killing of a newborn baby. So to say it another way around, if you can't kill a newborn, a life which is just as dependent on support and wouldn't have any conscience, consciousness of what's happening either, then you can kill a baby in the born, a, a baby in the womb, months earlier. Both acts destroy the unfolding of a human life. Um, let me just pause and say, like, I, I know this is a difficult topic, an uncomfortable topic. Um, abortion is a very real, a very personal matter, and something for which uh, there is a lot of deep pain and sorrow. Um, but just as unborn babies are created in the image of God, all of us, no matter what we've done, are created in the image of God. All of us, no matter what we've done, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. Now, if you're carrying um, the burden of guilt in this particular area of life, please hear from me. God sees you. God knows you. Um, and in Jesus, he offers grace and forgiveness, just as he offers grace and forgiveness, regardless of whatever we've done. So that's the first implication. The unborn child is fearfully and wonderfully made. But the second implication is the disabled person is fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, the joy and wonder expressed about the human body in this psalm is not always expressed or experienced uh, in the case of disability or if you have a child with disability. Instead, uh, there is confusion, there's incomprehension, there's sorrow. And sometimes there is this question, God, if we're so fearfully and wonderfully made, why did this happen? You know, certainly parents of special needs children often ask that question. Uh, my wife and uh, Megan and I, we, we have a special needs son and, and sometimes we've asked that question. Um, sometimes there are proven medical reasons why disability happens, but most of the time there's not. Uh, there's not a clear reason. It's almost always never the direct fault of parents. So where does this leave us? Um, what can we say about disability and God's plan for our bodies? Um, there's a conversation between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 4 that I think is quite instructive. You might remember in, sorry, Exodus, yeah, Exodus 4. Uh, you might remember um, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and commands him, go back to Egypt, uh, command Moses, to uh, Pharaoh, to let my people go. And Moses is not keen. And he says to God, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Now, there is a suggestion here that Moses has 
some sort of disability. But look at what God says back to him. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord's? Now, think about what God is saying here and let it impact you for a moment. Uh, God not only doesn't deny responsibility for these conditions like deafness and blindness, things that we would, not only, would normally call disabilities, but rather to our surprise, he takes credit for them. He takes responsibility for them. God says these things come from him and are made by him. Uh, Joni Erickson, who um, has been a quadriplegic since she was 17, uh, talks about this passage saying, uh, does God cause, cause blindness or does he allow it? Does he plan for a person to be born deaf or does he permit it? In short, does God want disease? Now, the key here is how we use the word wants. God doesn't want disease to exist in the same way that he enjoys it. He hates disease, just as he hates all the results of sin, death, guilt, sorrow, for example. But God must want disease to exist in the sense that he wills or chooses for it to exist. For if he didn't, he would wipe it out immediately. What does this mean? Well, simply this. God doesn't delight in disability, but he allows disability. He is sovereign over disability. Uh, we need to understand this. There are no accidents in God's world. Uh, nothing about our bodies is random or arbitrary. Uh, we need to acknowledge, just as Job acknowledged, that there are some causes, some reasons for suffering that we simply will not find out this side of heaven. Um, I think part of our struggle in coming to terms with disability and understanding disability is our unwillingness to personally embrace weakness. Uh, as much as we recognise on an intellectual level uh, that our world is imperfect and broken, we don't want to accept it on a personal level. Uh, we are conditioned to expect the good life. We're, we're, we're entitled. We, we, we expect the good life. Our world tells us that we should look and feel a particular way. We should expect to hold off the effects of aging and, and, and with the right products and the right, I don't know, cosmetics. We should expect that aches and pains and diseases will go away with the right medicines and procedures. We should expect the right job, the right income, the right lifestyle with the right education. We expect things to turn out largely the way we want them to turn out. We esteem the athletically strong, the aesthetically beautiful, uh, the financially successful. We don't aspire to weakness. Uh, again, Joni Erickson tells the story of once buying a horse with her sister. Uh, they carefully examined the horse for all these flaws and hidden weaknesses. And reflecting on that, she wrote, weak spots. It's scary to think, uh, it's scary to think of having your weak spots exposed, isn't it? Weaknesses have a way of either raising or lowering your value in the eyes of others. Now, the Bible says that God alone is perfect. Um, by contrast, all people are broken and weak in every area of life, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, morally, physically, 
normally we, we, we try to hide our weaknesses from others. But the most difficult weakness to hide is physical weakness. Uh, we can't deny our physical weaknesses. Uh, perhaps that's why disability scares us. Uh, we often don't know how to deal with it. We find disability awkwardness, awkward. Our physical brokenness and disability reminds us that in the end, we are finite and helpless. Like the disabled, uh, we are dis dependent on others, we are dependent on God, and we prefer that that wasn't the case. Uh, perhaps, perhaps that's why God allows disability, uh, to remind us that we are equally fearfully and wonderfully made, but also that we are equally dependent and helpless. We are all beggars for grace. Now let me finish just by saying a little bit on shame. Um, some of us don't feel as though we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, you might feel shame about your appearance. Uh, you might feel shame about something that you've done to your body or with your body. You might feel shame about something that somebody else has done to your body. And you hold this sense of shame very closely to you. Um, it's a constant presence. And so how do we deal with this sense of shame? Hebrews 4. Uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Uh, Jesus knows all our troubles. Like I said this morning, he has walked this road of suffering and pain long before any of us did. Uh, he experienced the worst of human life in this broken world. Uh, there is no kind of pain that we go through that Jesus doesn't know more about than we do. And this is the Jesus who embraced the broken. Um, this is the Jesus who healed the blind and the lame and cast out the demons. This is the Jesus who touched the leper, who hugged the ceremonially unclean. Uh, this is the Jesus who ate with the outcast and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and proclaim to them, your sins are forgiven. And this is the Jesus who we're told in Isaiah, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Uh, and to experience shame. Uh, he went to the cross and he was despised, abhorred, humiliated, rejected. And even though he didn't deserve it, he did that all for us. He took upon himself actually our shame and our sin. Uh, that's how much he loves you. Uh, God knows everything about you. Um, God is sovereign over your body. Uh, he is with you. He sees everything about you and he looks upon you with all your beauty but also with all your flaws and he delights in you. Therefore, uh, we can learn to praise God even amongst all the difficulties of life. We can say to him, God, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me pray for us and then we'll um, see if there's any questions.
Uh, Lord God, thank you for this sweeping, uh, beautiful picture of human existence uh, in this psalm. Uh, Lord, we, we want to be with David and join in the praise and in the delight in recognizing that uh, you see everything about us. You know everything about us. You are present wherever we can go. Um, we want to echo those words. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, but Lord, we also recognize that um, our world is broken and, and we are broken. Um, we don't use these bodies that you have given us in a way that honors and glorifies you. Um, we don't protect the life, the lives of the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, we look down upon people. Uh, we covet other people. We covet what they have, what they look like. Um, and in doing so, we show ingratitude for what you have given us. Lord, we just want to pause and ask for forgiveness um, and help us to understand you are right and ourselves are right um, so that we would echo in our hearts and in our lives uh, the sentiments in this psalm written by David. Uh, Lord, we know that today we've, we've discussed a lot of uh, difficult topics. In, in some respects, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, Lord, some of these things are tough for us to believe. Uh, so, Lord, once again, we ask that when your word says things that are difficult for us to understand or to accept, help us not to turn away in hardness of heart or unbelief. But, Lord, guide us and soften us by your spirit so that we would... Uh, know you and give you the glory for what you have done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.